Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Graders and on down, you may leave now to go to Kids Own Worship. The rest of you, don't turn to Acts yet. Turn to 1 Timothy and then we're going to get to Acts. So put a, Acts 9 is where we're really going to be camping out, but we're going to go to 1 Timothy before we go to Acts as you're turning there. Well, it all started out while he was riding a motorcycle to the zoo with his brother, Warney. And you may think, what's the significance of riding a motorcycle to the zoo? Well, let me tell you the story of Jack. Many of you probably have heard of Jack. Jack was a young man whose mother died of cancer at age nine. This set him on a trajectory to become an atheist. He grew up in England. His mother died of cancer. Why would God allow my mom to die of cancer? And then he suffered an injury in World War I and became even more of an atheist. And then in 1925, as a young man, he began teaching literature, medieval literature, at Oxford University in 1925. One of his best friends was a guy named Toily. That was his nickname. They called him Toily. You may have known who Toily was. He wrote three famous trilogies called Lord of the Rings. None other than J.R.R. Tolkien. Who was Jack? Well, his real name was C.S. Lewis, nicknamed Jack. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and their friends would spend nights talking about literature and history and uh, mythology and philosophy. And think about the imagination that would go into those discussions late at night. You've got the, the Chronicles of Narnia meets the, 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 um, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. And the interesting thing began to happen was Tolkien began to convince C.S. Lewis about Christianity. And there was a night where C.S. Lewis switched from being an atheist to an agnostic. An agnostic believes that there's something out there. They don't totally deny that there's God. There's something out there. I don't know what it is. And so C.S. Lewis becomes an agnostic. A very, um, he says that he was converted to agnostic, dejected and reluctant. But he still wasn't a Christian. It wasn't until that motorcycle ride to the zoo. He was, in his memoirs, it says that on his way to the zoo, before they got there, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. After they got to the zoo, he believed Jesus was the Son of God. Just like that. God converted him on a trip to the zoo. Not very dramatic. Not very earth-shattering. Which leads us to ask a question. How does God save sinners? And you may be saying, well, Sean, we've been around here a long time. We know what your answer is going to be. God saves sinners through the preaching of the gospel. And you would be right. But how does God actually work in the heart and the mind of a lost person to bring them to that point of salvation? Does he always work in the same way? Is there a, a formula that we can copy with God, this cookie-cutter approach where God saves everybody in just the same way? Think about Pentecost. 
You remember, Peter preaches that powerful message at Pentecost and the people were pricked to the heart. They said, what must we do to be saved? It, 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 was, a, it was a powerful sermon. We looked at last week the Ethiopian eunuch. It was a gradual riding in the chariot dialogue with Philip where they were just having this conversational Bible study. How was it for you? Was it dramatic? Was it over a long period of time? Was it intellectual like C.S. Lewis? Was it in your house? Was it in the mountains? Was it in your car? Was it in a worship service? Was it at the beach? Was it at a camp? Was it with a friend? See, the amazing thing is that God's gospel never changes. The message doesn't change. And the power of the gospel never changes. But the way in which God saves people is so diverse. It's so beautiful to see all the different ways that God brings sinners to himself. And as we'll see with Paul this morning, it was dramatic. It was earth-shattering. It was a Damascus Road experience. Now, you may not have had that Damascus Road experience where it was very dramatic. It could have been where you were just um, going to the zoo and you became a Christian. Or it could have been under the powerful preaching of the Word in a worship service where you felt the overpowering conviction of the Holy Spirit. It could have been where you were just at coffee with a friend and you were dialoguing about the the Bible and, and God just opened your heart to the truths of His Word. God does it in many different ways. So before we turn to Acts, let's look at 1 Timothy real quick. And we find these words of Paul about his life before he was saved. 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's look at verses 12 through 17. Just a little preamble here before we get to the Acts passage. Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Paul really makes up a word there in the Greek language. The worstest of the worstest is basically how you could probably translate it. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost is the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Now, some of your translations may say all long-suffering or unlimited patience. I love the beauty of that passage. Christ displayed perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was the worst of sinners. He was a blasphemer. He was a violent man. And God got to grab a hold of him and saved him by amazing grace. And, and Paul says, the reason that God showed me this unlimited patience, this unlimited mercy, this great grace was to be an example to us who would believe to see that God saves sinners. Now, that's how Paul describes in an epistle the amazing grace that he experienced. Let's go to Acts, where we've been hanging out the past few months as we continue through our journey in Acts. And let's read Acts chapter 9, 1 through 9. Very pivotal passage of scriptures we get to. This is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to becoming Paul the Apostle. So let's see how this unfolds. Very familiar story, but there's a lot in there. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as they went on his way, 
he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now in verses 1 and 2, we find out what Saul's life was like before he was converted. It says he was breathing out murderous threats. He was going to go to Damascus with letters from the high priest to drag these Christians out of their homes, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to persecute them. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He's a violent, he's a, he's a man that's bent on a mission. He's almost described here, if you look at the original language, he's almost described as a wild animal, a lion, a ferocious wolf going to tear apart the sheep. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at some of the same words that are used here that, that for Paul and you compare them to Old Testament words, it's like a wild boar going into a vineyard to wreak havoc. He is a salivating animal waiting to pounce upon these Christians. He's angry. He's violent. He's a blasphemer. He's breathing out murderous threats. Now, later on in Acts, when Paul begins to recount this, this, this story of his conversion, we find in Acts 26.11 his attitude. Acts 26.11, so, uh, Paul says, And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities in raging fury. Now, we see the sovereign grace of God here in in full HD, in high definition. Was Paul a spiritually sensitive man that we would call a seeker? Was he attending your Christianity Explored class? Was he slipping into the back of the sanctuary to check things out? Was he spiritually sensitive to Christ and his gospel? No, he is a full-out, adamantly opposed, hostile, salivating, angry, violent man opposed to Christ and his gospel. And what does God do? God in sovereign grace reaches down and blinds him, knocks him. We don't know if he's on a horse. Some people say he was knocked off a horse. The text doesn't tell us. But he's knocked down. He's blinded. And he has this encounter with the, with the risen Christ, an overwhelming encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus himself appears to Saul. And notice in verse 4, uh, Jesus doesn't crush him. Jesus doesn't um, like come with this power and basically annihilate Saul and say, you're such a cruel man, I'm going to come and punish you. What does he do? He asks him a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why do you hate me so much? Why are you so hostile against me and my people? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm I'm Jesus, the one that you've been persecuting. Now rise and go to the city and I'll give you further instructions on what's going to happen. And Paul's blinded. Here he is, this religious, arrogant man coming with all power in himself to take these Christians out and persecute them. And he leaves blinded, being led by hand. John Stott says this, He who expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. You could say this, 
the arrester becomes the arrested. Paul goes in there to arrest Christians, but what happens? He's the one that gets arrested. He's the one that gets grabbed. He's the one that gets saved. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting terminology that Paul uses in Philippians. You're probably familiar with that passage in Philippians 3.12. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Now, the Greek translation there for made me his own means Christ tackled me. Christ seized me. Christ arrested me. Christ took a hold of me. Think about Jesus grabbed a hold of Saul and never let him go. The arrester becomes the arrested. He's arrested by the glory of Christ. But not only that, he's blinded. Think about the fact that Paul is blinded by light. Now, spiritually, we know that lost people are living in darkness. Lost people are blinded to the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so what does Paul say? Later on about what, how the gospel comes to those who are blinded. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Almost like creation, God shone in our hearts. So if you become a Christian, God has shown the light. God has blinded you by the glory of Christ to open your eyes to see the truth. So Paul was arrested. Paul was blinded. But that passage in Timothy that we just looked at says Paul was flooded. He was overtaken by a flood. 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The word overflowed there means like an ocean. Uh, A flood comes overflowing him. He's arrested. He's blinded. He's flooded. Now, at first glance, you may think, well, that only happened to Paul. That dramatic thing only happened to Paul. But let me just say this. If you're a Christian here today, that's happened to you. Maybe not in the dramatic fashion. So here's the question I have for you. Have you been arrested by the glory of Christ? Have your eyes been blinded to the beauty of Christ? And have you been overwhelmed by the ocean of Christ's love? We need to never get over the fact that God has saved us by His grace. He reached down from heaven. You didn't take the initiative. You were dead. You were lost. Christ reached down and He grabbed you out of your sin and He saved you by grace. He arrested you. He blinded you. He flooded you. Now, instead of being arrested and going to prison... We've been arrested to have freedom in the family of God. Instead of being blinded to not see anymore, we've been, our eyes have been opened to the beauty of Christ. Instead of being um, overflowed in a flood of God's wrath, we're swimming in the ocean of God's love. Now, we find out from Paul that we look at this conversion experience and we often think, was this a sudden thing? Was this a dramatic thing? Yes, it was dramatic, But was it sudden? Was this the first time Saul had ever encountered the gospel of Christ? No. We find evidence in later on in the the book of Acts that Saul had had a previous encounter with Jesus. Has this happened to you? Did you become a Christian the very first time you heard the gospel? Very first time did you become a Christian? 
Most of us here probably it took time. It took many exposures to the gospel. We had to hear it many, many different times. We weren't just dramatically saved. God has been drawing you to himself all along behind the scenes. As a matter of fact, what does Jesus say in John six forty four? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. If you are to become a Christian, God does a preparatory work in your heart to draw you to himself. And if you become a Christian as an adult, you know this. You look back after the fact when you were saved and you realize those people that were praying for you. You realize there was that Sunday school class that was praying for you. You realize that there was that person that, that was so patient with you sharing the gospel time and time again. They, they put up with all your junk and all your questions. And behind the scenes, God was drawing you to himself for that one moment in time where he was going to shine the light in your eyes. He was going to open you to the truth of the gospel and it would be your moment of salvation. Behind the scenes, God was plowing your heart, getting you ready for that moment of your conversion. He did it with Saul. In Acts 26, 13-14, we find these words. Paul is recounting what had happened. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, Saul had all, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I had to do a little research. What does it mean to kick against the goads? What's a goad? Anybody know what a goad is? Glenn's shaking his head. I'm not going to call on you, Glenn, even though you're one of our elders. A goad is a stick that you use to beat an animal with. If there's a stubborn mule or a stubborn bull that's not moving, you goad them. It's a stick that has like a sharp thing on the end, and you whack it. It's kind of like using a two-by-four on an animal. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that before I became a Christian, I was a stubborn, rebellious mule and Jesus had to get my attention with the two-by-four and it wasn't working. Now think about the exposure that Saul had to the gospel before this Damascus Road encounter. Where was Saul at the stoning of Stephen? He was standing right there. What did Saul hear? Stephen proclaimed the full, unadulterated gospel of how Christ is the only way of salvation. Christ fulfills all the prophecies from the Old Testament that he truly is the Messiah. Saul heard the gospel from Stephen. Saul saw Stephen's face shine like an angel. And then he heard Stephen forgive them as they were stoning him. All along, Saul was exposed to the gospel of grace. But what did he do? He suppressed it and he went on his merry way as a persecutor. Think about how it had to haunt him to see that. How it gnawed at his spirit to know that he was going against the very Christ of Christ. So this was going against the goads. God was using things in his life to get his attention. Many of us have been there. How many times has God had to use a two by four to get our attention? How many times have we ducked? The Puritans used to call God the holy hound of heaven. It's kind of a weird metaphor. But if God's after you, you can't outrun him, you can't outsend him, you can't get away from him. If you are one of his, he will make sure you get saved. Now, it may be painful on the process, it may take a lot of time to get there, but God will pursue you the way he pursued Saul. Let's be thankful that God is the pursuer of us 
instead of the pursuer being ourselves. Now, God does this in many different ways. God is not cruel in goading us. God is not cruel in bringing things into our lives to get our attention. Think of the opposite. What would be the opposite if God, if God didn't use things to get your attention? Think about what that means. God would just let you go on your merry way and sin, and just, you would just, just go on your own path. In mercy and grace, God comes to you in this preparatory work, and he may bring some things into your life. He may bring some things into circumstances that you can't control, but he's, he's going to bring some things into your life to get you prepared for that moment of salvation. Now, you may not have a blinding light like Paul on the road to Damascus. You may not see Jesus personally appear to you and say, why are you persecuting me? It may be intellectual like C.S. Lewis where, where you just kind of, all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on. It's like, yes, Jesus is the Savior. It may be under the powerful preaching of God's word, maybe um, at a crusade or at a worship service where you were overpowered with the, the gospel of Christ and you repented there on the spot. It could be where you're having a conversation in the car with someone and God just uses that to bring you to salvation. It could be in the mountains all by yourself. It could be in a hotel room reading the Gideon's Bible. God uses many different ways, but the result is the same. When God determines to save a sinner, he's going to do it. He's going to reach down from heaven. He's going to grab you. He's going to blind you. He's going to overflood you with mercy and grace. He's going to liberate you to become a child of God. He's going to shower you with mercy. Now, let's see what happens next. Verses 10 and following. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he'd seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he had done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now what's the first thing that we see Saul doing after God saves him? He's praying. He's fasting and praying. He's in the presence of the Lord. One commentator has said this, the raging lion has been changed into a bleating lamb. And the Lord shows up to this man named Ananias in a vision and says, go lay hands on Saul, go to him. And what does Ananias have? The same reaction you would have had. He waffles on the issue. You want me to go do what? Isn't he the murderer? Isn't he the persecutor? Why in the world would you want to sign my death sentence, God? It's suicide to go in there to Saul when he's been murdering all these Christians. You want me to do what? No, thank you, God. And then finally, God convinces Ananias. And look at verse 15. We find the commission on Paul's life. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument. Paul has been set apart primarily to be a missionary to the Gentiles. God has his hand on Saul's life and says, No, Ananias, you need to go because this is my chosen instrument. This is my man. He's going to be a great apostle to go to the Gentiles. But 
There's going to be something about his life that's going to mark his ministry. Verse 16 says he's going to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, if we hang around long enough in the book of Acts, you'll see how this plays out. Paul's always getting beaten. He's always having to leave town. He's getting shipwrecked. He's getting flogged. People are always after him. His entire ministry is one of suffering. And so Ananias obeys. He goes to the house by Saul there alone, praying. And what are the first words? This is, a, this is a little beautiful passage of Scripture, I think. What are the first words that Saul hears from another believer? Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Not murderer Saul, persecutor Saul, bad guy Saul, wild animal Saul. It's brother Saul. Think about how meaningful it would have been for Saul to hear those words, you're my brother. You're my brother in Christ. And what happens next? I'm sounding like a broken record. Now, wait a minute. There's no such thing as those anymore. I'm sounding like a skip CD. Wait a minute. CDs are on their way out. I'm sounding like a corrupted MP3. Okay? That's the only analogy we've got because nobody knows what a broken record is anymore. What happens to Ananias? Or what happens to Saul? Look at verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell off from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and he was what? Baptized. We've seen it over and over again. The Samaritans believed and were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch believed and was baptized. Here you have Saul the apostle, the writer of most of the New Testament, being baptized. Now just because you think that I'm beating a drum because we're a Baptist church, I'm not. It shows up in the Bible. And if we want to be faithful to the biblical text, we've got to deal with what's there. He is baptized. I'm going to say it over and over again in Acts. If you have not been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, please come see me after the service. Please send me an email. Please call me. Fill out a connection card. We want to help you understand what it means to be baptized. The reason I keep bringing this up is because the Bible keeps bringing it up. Every time someone believes in Jesus, they are subsequently baptized by immersion. The biblical mandate of believers' baptism. But I think it's interesting to see what happens next. Look at verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and all those who call upon his name? And he's not come here for this purpose, to bring them, them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, it's crucial to see what happens next. There's an issue in our current evangelical world, and it's this. It's called fear of commitment to a church. What does Saul do right after being baptized? He goes and spends days with the church. He joins himself in fellowship with the church. He doesn't go sit in his living room and watch TBN and have that be his pastor. He doesn't go to the mountains and have family church with just him and his family. He doesn't get on internet church. He enfolds himself in the life of a local congregation. It's not a lone ranger type thing here. He immerses himself. Why does Paul need the church? He needs the encouragement. He needs the strength. He needs the teaching. He needs to have the fellowship of believers. And we live in a culture that's afraid of commitment to church. And it's a greater issue. The greater issue is we live in a culture that's afraid of commitment, period. 
People don't want to commit to a church because if they commit, that means that they are then held accountable. Most people, and I'm going to preach here for just a minute, so just let me preach and then we'll come back to the message, okay? There's a lot of people that come to churches that are consumers, not servants. People will come and sit on the sidelines and say, what does this church have to offer me? As opposed to, how has God called me to serve this church? They have a phobia of getting connected to a local church. They'd rather consume from what the church has as opposed to serve God through the church. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back to the message. I've rarely seen a healthy Christian who lives in isolation from a local church. It may happen, you may be healthy for a while, but in the long term, you will begin to wither, you will begin to fade, and you will not receive the strength. We weren't meant to live without fellowship. In verses 20 through 21, you see how God's hands on Paul. What does Paul do right away? He goes and preaches in the synagogues. I mean, people are freaked out because here's the guy that before was breathing out murderous threats, and now you can't shut him up about Jesus. He's preaching fearlessly. And there's this shock and awe because the people don't quite trust him. Uh, Can we trust this man? And in verse 22, we find out he's getting stronger and stronger. The Holy Spirit's giving him strength. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's spending a lot of time just with the Holy Spirit on his life. Now, there's a gap in Paul's life that's not, it's mentioned briefly here, but we need to understand that. Verse 23, when many days had passed, Luke says when many days had passed. Really, it was three years. There was a three-year gap between when, 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 when Saul was first saved. He spent three years, and then he went back to Jerusalem and then went back to Damascus. We find this in Galatians. Galatians 1, 15 through 18. Paul's giving a little bit of an autobiography. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Now, Paul spends three years in the Arabian desert. We have no idea what went on during those three years. Some scholars say it was three years to correspond with the three years that the other 12 disciples got to spend with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Some commentators said during those three years is when Christ personally taught Paul a lot of the things that he wrote in the New Testament. We really don't know. We just know that that Paul removed himself from the action and went and spent three years in Arabia. And then he comes back. He comes back to Damascus. Let's get back to verse 25. Or 23, when many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. What awaits Paul when he comes back? What was the prediction on his life? Your ministry is going to be marked by suffering. And the first thing finds out there's a plot on his life. So how does he have to escape town? He's got to be lowered in a basket in an opening of a wall. We find this in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two through 33 At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. He had to hightail it out. And then he goes to Jerusalem. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because he was from Jerusalem originally going out with orders to Damascus, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem after this three-year gap What's the church going to think about him? Are they going to be suspicious of him? 
And so he comes back wanting fellowship. Let's pick up in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He wanted that fellowship again. Again, no Lone Ranger Christianity. And they were afraid of him. They did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember we, we were introduced to Barnabas earlier, the son of encouragement. He vouches for Paul, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is basically saying, you can trust Paul. He's saved by grace. He's now a Christian. As a matter of fact, he's fearlessly preaching the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, the Hellenists were the same group of people that stoned Stephen. And so Paul's in trouble again. And so the disciple says, you can't hang around here. You've got to hightail it again back to Tarsus. Go back to your hometown. And then we, we have to wait a few chapters in Acts before we pick up on Saul again. Here's the irony. The first time that Saul leaves Jerusalem, he's going to catch fugitives on the run. The second time he leaves Jerusalem, he's a fugitive himself, escaping. But this time, because he is a Christian. Now, Luke ends his entire section here in verse 31 with this statement. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This starts a section that goes all the way back to chapter 6, verse 8. What have we seen over the past few weeks? We've seen the stoning of Stephen. We've seen the great persecution where Saul was ravaging the church. They are sent out. We see Philip going and breaking social and and, and discriminatory barriers by going to the Samaritans. Then we see him breaking another barrier by going to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then Saul is converted on the road to Damascus and he goes and preaches and spends three years in Arabia and he comes back and he has to hightail out of the city and you almost have to what? Catch your breath because all this stuff's happening. And Luke gets us to catch our breath and says this about the church. And we're going to focus on this next week because time is getting away from us. Next week, we're going to look at these five characteristics in verse 31 about what a healthy church is. What do we find out? The church throughout all Judea and Samaria had peace. We're going to explore what does it mean to have peace. They were being built up. What does a church look like that's being built up? Number three, it was walking in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean when a church walks in the fear of the Lord? It received the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We're going to look at that next week. And then it multiplied. So we're going to spend some some time just looking at verse 31 next week. But here's the issue. The issue for this morning. We must always understand the power of the gospel. Could persecution stop the gospel? No. Could the stoning of Stephen stop the gospel? No. Could racial discrimination and prejudice against the Samaritans and against the Ethiopian eunuch stop the gospel? No. Could geography and location all the way down to Africa stop the gospel? Could the worst of sinners being saved stop the gospel? No. God is sovereign. God is powerful. As we sang earlier, our God saves. So here's the question for you this morning. Have you been arrested? And I mean that in a positive way. Have you been arrested by the beauty of Christ? Have you been blinded to the glory of Christ? And have you been overwhelmed by a flood of the mercy of Christ? If you're a Christian here this morning, I pray that you never get over the fact that Christ saved you by grace. If you're not a Christian here this morning, 
today can be your day of salvation. If, if God can save the worst kind of sinner like Saul, think what he can do in your life. Now, I know immediately you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Let me, let me speak to two types of people. There's religious people and there's irreligious people. And there's a third category we'll get to, okay? Here's the religious people. You may be in here this morning and you're a religious person. I do good. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm a good old boy. I'm a good old girl. I don't smoke, chew, or, or, or drink and go with girls that do. I'm a hard worker. Um, I, I try to go to church. I, I try to obey the Ten Commandments. I pride myself in being very, very religious. I, I grew up in America. Thus, I, I must be a Christian because God bless America is on my bumper sticker. I'm a good person. If that describes you this morning, guess what? You're not saved. You're a good person, but you're on the way to hell. Sorry. Person number two. Maybe you're the irreligious person. Man, I'm not, I know I'm not a good person. I know I don't live by the Ten Commandments. I know that I don't go to church. I'm not even going to pretend to be religious. I've done a lot of evil things. I've done a lot of bad things. If, if, if all the things I was done were shown up on this video screen, I would have to be thrown out of this town because I would have a major guilt. I know I am a bad person. Guess what? You're not saved either. But the Bible speaks of a third category. You have the religious people that want to do all this good. You've got the irreligious people that do all this bad. But guess what? Only the gospel answers the question of a saved person. Whether you consider yourself good, whether you consider yourself bad, the Bible says all of us are bad. All of us are dead in sin. All of us deserve hell. And the only way that you can get saved is not by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or not trying to run away from God and get your act cleaned up or try to get yourself saved. The only way that you can get saved is by trusting alone in Christ Jesus for salvation. You have to be arrested by the glory of Christ. You've got to be blinded by the truth of Christ. You've got to be overwhelmed by the flood of Christ. And this morning, Jesus can come to you, not personally, like showing up in a blinding light, but Christ can come to your heart today and he can save you out of your sin. Whether you're religious or whether you're irreligious, Christ can come to you and make you a Christian this morning that says, it's not about being good, it's not about being bad, it's about being saved because I can't save myself. And that can happen to you this morning. My prayer is that everybody in this room leaves this place knowing that Christ alone is Lord. That you've been stopped in your tracks. You've been stopped in your tracks. When was the last? Let's talk to Christians, okay? I, well, I'm going to keep going. Is that all right? I've got the microphone. You can't stop. <laughs> Let me just speak real quickly to Christians. Do we, do we truly understand the unlimited patience that Christ has shown us? Can you think about that, First Timothy? If Christ hadn't been patient with us, where would you be this morning? Do you praise God on a daily basis for the grace and mercy and the fact that he saved you by grace alone? I hope, Christians, we never get over the fact that we're saved people. We never go and say, you know what? Yeah, salvation, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. No, it should drive us to our knees daily when we think about the glory of the cross. If you're not a Christian here this morning, my prayer for you is that you would fall to your knees you would see the glory of Christ, you would wave the white flag of surrender, you would bow to King Jesus and say, Lord, I'm yours. I trust you alone. I can't save myself. I can't do anything. I don't deserve anything. As a matter of fact, I deserve hell and condemnation. And the only thing I can do is plead for your mercy and trust alone that you will save me from my sins. And you know what the promise from Scripture is? It's a great promise. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So if you call upon him today, the promise from Scripture is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We have that statement in 1 Timothy ringing in our ears that we were shown perfect, unlimited patience by a God that didn't have to show us patience, didn't have to save us, but did because of his great love and mercy. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you have really tried the patience of God by your sin. Would you realize that God is the holy hound of heaven? You can't outrun him. You can't out him. He will pursue you. And what a great thing it is to be arrested by King Jesus. Would you spend just a few moments in silent prayer this morning? If you're a Christian, just spend time praising God that he saved you. Never get over that. Maybe pray for the lost people around you that God would save them. If you're not a Christian this morning, I can't talk you into it. God has to do a work in your heart. But would you please take the quietness of this moment to look at your life and realize that without Christ, you are nothing. You have no hope. You have no joy. You have no life. And would you repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation this morning? Spend a few moments in silent prayer.